Rapture is the best song by Blondie. It makes you feel like there's no other choice but to raise your arms up and shake your feet. Even the man from Mars eating cars disco rap weird bits. All of it. Debbie Harry's voice swoons to a command. The piper playing to the wicker basket of cobras and inhibitions be damned. Though... When you hear it in a Chipotle, in your 40s, seated across from your nine-year-old daughter, you realize there are limitations to enchantments, to how much you can get away with shaking, that once you could let it all go, and who would care? Could carpe all the damn DM you dare, and in this chain burrito experience, in this age of graying hair, this rapture, where while gravity holds you tight to your chair, all around you, others are lifted one by one into the air. Welcome to The Drunken Odyssey with John King, a podcast about the writing life. Tell us all news about a man whose mind and career has careened far and wide and upside down, whose computers are seared with crimes against grammar, whose typographical aggressions are legion, whose words flow into the very mouth of time, and more than a few bottles. A man who actually owns a typewriter, and perhaps even and now your host john king welcome my friends to episode 611 of the world's greatest writing podcast on today's show, I talk with the poet Matt Mason about the poetic necessity of engaging with popular culture that is part of the fabric of our American life, including rock music, and obviously, obviously, the Disney phenomenon. How's your week going? Here at the secret headquarters of the Drunken Odyssey, a great mystery has been solved. I think. For over a year, I've been getting pitches, publicists asking me, assuming my eagerness, if they can schedule an interview with different leaders of the corporate world and the tech world to talk about how thrilling AI will be for the future of corporate America. Now, I do look good in a suit, but anyone who thinks that I am a corporate journalist has obviously taken a red swing line stapler to the noggin. I figured my name was on a list somewhere, and I was right. My name was on a list somewhere when a publicist, when I expressed my bewilderment, was kind enough to show me the list. And there I was, mashed together with at least one other John King. I'm not exactly sure why these publicists would see, first and foremost, John King, host of the Drunken Odyssey, and think, there's someone who needs to report about business. So it still seems a little crazy to me, but at least, you know, I can chart the how and the why 
of the crazy. Congratulations to E. Jean Carroll for winning her second defamation suit against, well, you know who. She appeared on this podcast all the way back on episode 398, back in 2019. And I sincerely hope, sometime soon, she can get back to, you know, being herself rather than going to court to protect herself. It's been a while since I've mentioned my writing progress, so regarding my horror screenplay, well, all right, turns out I don't really want to talk about it. Let's talk to Matt Mason. And now, the interview of the day. Matt Mason is the Nebraska State Poet and was Executive Director of the Nebraska Writers Collective from 2009 to 2022. Through the U.S. State Department, he has run workshops in Botswana, Romania, Nepal, and Belarus. Mason is the recipient of a Pushcart Prize and fellowships from the Academy of American Poets and the Nebraska Arts Council. His work can be found in the New York Times, on NPR's Morning Edition, in American Life and Poetry, and more. Mason's fourth book, at the Corner of Fantasy and Maine, Disneyland, Midlife, and Churros was released by the Old Mill Press in 2022. Matt is based out of Omaha with his wife, the poet Sarah McKinstry-Brown, and daughters Sophia and Lucia. His latest book is Rock Stars. Matt, we've been circling each other for a little while now, and it is so great to finally talk. You write books of poetry that do all the things that poetry needs to do, and yet, on top of all that, these books feel very companionable, which I think most poets can't quite pull off. Well, thank you. That you have a way of dealing with abstraction and with pop culture that makes it feel very immediate rather than simply clever. Thank you. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. What you're talking about is really what I'm going for, so I'm glad it hits you that way. I want poetry to be readable and enjoyable and entertaining as well as well put together, well crafted. Yeah, I call poetry the ass end of entertainment, but there's no reason why it shouldn't be considered part of the spectrum of entertainment. It used to be a major form of entertainment. In the 19th century, it was pop culture itself. Yeah, exactly. We're bringing it back, maybe, <laughs> slowly. So I have worked on a couple of different projects that I struggle with. So maybe you could teach me something, or maybe we're just different poets, and also... My MFA is in fiction writing, and so I kind of backed into poetry writing when I had to teach it to my students, and I thought, well, I better embarrass myself with my vulnerability rather than assess my students' work without actually trying to write poetry myself. In between my undergrad and my master's degree, not my MFA, but my master's degree, my first great humanitarian act was to stop writing poetry. But... I loved themed books of poetry, and I don't think you drive themes into the ground, and there's wild variations, for example, in rock stars. You treat the romantic poets like rock stars, which is appropriate. Yeah. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, once you have a theme, figuring out how to write poems without it turning into homework or too programmatic, because if the surprises aren't there, if the emotional joy and surprise and sadness can't be found in the work that it, it doesn't really matter if you write so many themed poems. Yeah, I think, well, with Rock Stars especially, it's a book that I didn't sit down and write it one poem after another. Some of the poems were written specifically for the book, but a lot of them just follow themes I've been writing about for decades. So it's pulling in 
older poems, writing poems to fill the gaps. I just do a lot of writing. So I've got a lot of different folders with different subjects. And when one starts looking like a potential book length, that's when I start giving it a lot more attention. That's how it worked out. It was fun to play with. Rockstars started with just 80s rock poems and then broadened the definition to romantic poets and one quarterback and a few modern poets. It was fun to find the connections. Well, when I decided I wanted to be a writer, eventually the phrase I came up with for myself, which is really intolerable, insufferable, was I want to be a literary rock star. And... <laughs> For a few people, I am a literary rock star. Now that rock and roll is no longer what it was in terms of prestige or a sense of romantic wildness. I'm yeah. old. It hurts when I walk. It hurts when I do anything. We need literary rock stars. We really do. When you're in high school studying the romantic poets, they're all these stuffy guys in these weirdly stiff looking collars. And then you don't realize things like Byron got kicked out of a country. Shelley got kicked out of, I think, Cambridge or Oxford, but they were jerks and wild sex, drugs, rock and roll lifestyle, which is hard to get your mind around when you're a high school kid studying these poets that they were the Lady Gagas of their time or whatever. It's fun to get reminders that writers are like that. Well, and I think there's a lot to be said for persuading the reader to come along for the ride rather than yeah. presuming, and this is why... High school is where poetry goes to die. All right, it's canonical. It is in this book. You read it because it's important. And what I've taught general lit surveys, which I haven't done for quite some time now, but the last time I did it, I'm like, okay, I have gone out of my way to select a wide variety of writers and subjects. So you're bound to like something, but you're allowed to dislike anything you want. Yeah. I want to know what you think about things, but you're allowed to say, you know what? I didn't like that. Yeah. And that's important because otherwise students sit in a classroom secretly going, God, I hate this. When will this be over? <laughs> yeah. I think we just miss that sense that poetry is multiple genres. And if you hate the poems you're reading right now for a class, there are poems out there that you will like, but not in this genre, maybe not in this style. But we tend to look at poetry as monolithic. It either is good or it is not good. And I think we need reminders of that, or just reminders of the sense that poetry is so much broader than we're taught it is. That it could be personal, and yeah. that as readers, we have taste. <laughs> yes. Even if we're new to reading poetry and don't have a lot of experience, I think just beginning with a spirit of freedom can go a long way. Yeah. A trust that we think something is crap, it might actually be crap. <laughs> Maybe not universally, but at least for you and for a certain segment of readers, yes. Because I think going up through high school and college and grad school, being taught that these poets are important in this, and Ezra Pound is did amazing work in the contos, and no, fuck that. That's unreadable. Poetically, <laughs> beautifully crafted, yes, but not readable literature for me. It's dense. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and I think Elliot, I ride that line. It's like, okay, proof rock. It's like on a first reading, you can get the gist of proof rock and you can dig deeper into it. And the image of the patient etherized on a table, it's like, shit, this guy's creepy. And then the wasteland, it's like, okay, you're not going to understand this. So here's all the footnotes you need to understand it. I'm not going to wait for the scholars to write them. I'll just write them myself and save you a step. And part of me is thinking, thanks. And part of me is thinking, 
if James Joyce didn't write Ulysses, maybe you didn't have to write the poem that way. <laughs> and I need to read more into that. Ezra Pound is the villain in my pantheon, just front-loading that. And I know he did heavy edits on the early Wasteland, so I tend to blame Ezra for everything and leave everybody <laughs> off a little bit. So I'll cut Elliot some slack. Well, among the capital M moderns, there are some people who are incredibly difficult to like. Wyndham Lewis, Ezra Pound, whereas William Carlos Williams, who is, I would say, like line to line, so challenging most of the time and yet fun. Yeah. And partly it's just, okay, I seem to like that guy, whatever he's got going on, more than I like Ezra Pound generally. Yeah. Williams left his head. He went into the body in the senses, whereas Pound was entirely in his head. Williams is not my favorite, but he has taught me more about line breaks than possibly any other poet. So I'll give him plenty of credit for that. So poet friend of mine, when I was earning my MFA at NYU, taught me to let pop culture into my poetry when pop culture had something to add. I think of David Foster Wallace's sense as a creator writer. His elders were telling him, oh, you want your work to be kind of eternal. You don't want it to just feel stale and dated. So you don't want to put all these pop culture references into it. You want it to feel more realistic. And David Foster Wallace is like, my life has been nothing but pop culture <laughs> since the time I was a baby. How is excluding that realistic? And I think there's a real tension there because 30 years from now, will your readers know who Rick Astley is? Probably not, <laughs> right? And that will become one of those annoying footnotes, like Rick Astley was a, a pop singer. If it's hypertext, it's like, okay, yeah, go see Rick Roll. But part of the joy, at least for your contemporaries, is just seeing what happens when high art and low art just end up mashing up and twining themselves because... Yeah, among other things, like David Foster Wallace, by the time it occurred to me, maybe I shouldn't watch so much garbage. I've already watched <laughs> a lifetime of garbage. And it's like I started to get picky after I have this encyclopedic knowledge of stupidity. Oh, yeah. If you eliminate all pop culture, you eliminate a certain amount of the tension between the pop culture and the high culture. And when you can make those things intersect in any way, there's such energy. It's just so much fun. And so there's drawbacks, but man, I love playing with it. Well, in my case, so it was a poem about my dad helping me. I was a tiny little kid and I had the Evil Knievel stunt doll with the motorcycle and it took a lot of cranking to get him to do anything crazy and I was three two I don't know how old I was but my dad would just kneel down all the way to crank this thing up and I think it was maybe the kind of toy a dad could like in the early 70s but my poet friend Austin Legrone said because the poem didn't quite work there was something just missing. And he goes, oh, well, he was from Arkansas. So he said, oh, Evil Knievel was such a rapscallion who had so many great things to say. You probably want to quote him in the poem somewhere. And turns out there's not a whole book of aphorisms from the great Evil Knievel, but I only needed one. And the one I had was the linchpin that made the whole thing work. And Evil Knievel won Ezra Pound zero in terms of influencing my work. <laughs> So returning to your previous statement about how you build these volumes is you write a lot and you've been writing for a long time so that yeah. you just have so many poems to choose from. So what is your writing practice in terms of how much you try to get done and how much time you parcel out for 
the work of writing poetry? Yeah, it's something that's definitely up and down, depending just on my life and life circumstances. As a dad of two kids and different kinds of jobs, it all gets complicated naturally. But I make myself start at least one new poem every week. Started when I had a class in college where, you know, I'd been writing poems before then, but then I go into this class and they say, okay, in the next 10 weeks, you're going to turn in a poem every week. I didn't think I could do that because you wait for poems to fall out of the sky and anoint <laughs> your head or whatever it is. But what I found was when I had a deadline, I probably wrote 15 poems in those 10 weeks because I was looking for poems instead of waiting for them. And what I found is that there are poems daily that you can be writing. That class was on a Monday night, and I've kept that deadline for the past more than 30 years now of having at least one new poem started every week by Monday night, which means sometimes I'm writing crap at 11 50 p.m. Other times I've found multiple poems through the week to get started. So usually I'm not writing on a book or a project, though occasionally I am. Mostly it's just kind of what hit me during this week. And so I've got just folders and folders of poems from that. And a lot of them are terrible, but I just don't have to show those to people. So. <laughs> but the main thing for me is to just be focused on thinking about writing, looking for things to write about. For me, writing is a literary artistic exercise and all that, but more deeply, it's it's a personal thing. It's exploring the world. It's exploring myself. And even without being published, without books or being state poet of anywhere, I'd still be doing this because it's what makes me live a better life. So I have found sometimes that when I give myself an assignment or a deadline or just, all right, I'm going to write something, there's no telling how good it will be. Oh, yeah. I can take a fluff of almost nothing and then it turns into, oh, wow, that turned out way better than I thought. Yes, sometimes it's garbage, but sometimes without the poetic germ that I've caught somehow. Sometimes you don't have to wait for it, is my experience. And also sometimes when it's so juicy, you're like, oh, this is going to be the best poem. It's really difficult to then yeah. land it, maybe because you're too far outside the moment. And a poem is finding your way through an emotion. Yeah. It's taking that whatever inspired you and turning it into whatever that feeling or that voice that was in your head when you were inspired by something is hard to capture. We think, oh, I've got a pen and I've got a paper, I can write poems. And that's true, but it's kind of capturing perfectly that feeling is what takes so much translation inside yourself. It's fun. I love wrestling with it, but it's also frustrating because, yeah, I'll sit down, like you said, with, yeah, I got this great idea. And then you just can't make it sound right. <laughs> it's like, yep, I technically did it. Yeah, it's not changing any games. It's there. Yeah. And I find it refreshing that I'm sure this is not at the expense of joy and discovery, but treating it kind of like a job. You put in the time so that you can write three bad poems so that you'll have one great one. Yeah, it's kind of figure. I think everybody's a little different in what kind of schedule works best for them. Because, you know, I've tried that in April, we'll write a poem every day. And I've done that. And then every time I've done that, I look back on it. And it's like, how many poems that I like did I write in this month? And it's usually about the same number of poems as if I'd been doing my poem a week. Because for whatever reason, that schedule does not work for me, for generating new work at least. So what was it about hard rock 
that made you think of poetic experience. Your work is nostalgic, not in the saccharine sense, but in the sweet pain or the painful <laughs> sweetness of, I don't know, sometimes it's like, oh, that's what that craziness was when I was a teenager. Yeah. I get it now. Oh, yeah. And that's kind of it. Teenage years are so emotional and so formative for everybody. And just looking back and like, what was I doing when I was a teenager? I was listening to Dire Straits albums or Marillion albums or whatever. And they have such an impact more than just as a soundtrack to those years and experiences. I hear certain songs and I remember, oh yeah, and that's when I danced with this person at this prom or this or, you know, driving down the road. It's 1130 at night with friends in the car jamming this song. They're just part of these experiences in our formative times. And then as you go further with that, exploring the rock stars of the 80s and then just different kinds of rock stars and all and folding that in. It was so much fun to put this book together. So I wonder if you would read When We Saw Prince. All right. Who certainly does inspire poetry, if you ask me. <laughs> Definitely. Okay. When We Saw Prince. Our daughter was inside a belly, stretched five months taut. We weren't scared of decibels. We were counting on them filled with hopes of what one will absorb in utero. No, she hasn't spontaneously taken to purple raiments. Her piano lessons have not gone nova in a chromosomally unexplainable funkiness, but we have certitude that one does not backstroke in the amnion's current to such strobe, such electricity, while the body and brain are finding their ways and not be touched. This gestation takes patience. We feed her bones to strength, illuminate her in art museums, soak her in poetry. We humbly expect nothing but transcendence. So Prince is one of those figures who I had a peculiar relationship with in the 80s. So I was a heavy metal guy. And when Purple Rain came out, when Doves Cry, I didn't think it was bad. I was just confused. The droning that nah, nah. And I'm like, he's clearly being intense about something. Yeah. And Let's Go Crazy was okay. And if you watch the movie, the music suddenly finds a bigger context. But I think it was Sign of the Times that I'm like, oh shit, I'm in. <laughs> so I was like three or four years late. <laughs> Back when Prince fans were going, he's getting too weird. I can't handle this. That was when I said, okay, no, I'm in. Whatever that is. And that album, it's like a Beatles album. Every other song, he's like a different human being. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's just a different musical sensibility. Yeah. I didn't connect with him right away. And partly that's, I think, local bias in that back when Prince was starting, he would tour through Omaha and there would be commercials on TV, which was bizarre for the time. Commercials made in Minneapolis by his people of him touring. And nobody did that on TV here and it's like who is this guy who thinks we should know him I've never heard of him <laughs> and then you know two years later it's like damn it I should have gone to that concert <laughs> and a lot of artists did that in the 80s but he challenged his audience and oh yeah yeah it's like no everybody keep up with me <laughs> not all right let me sing my hits or whatever and Blondie being kind of every kind of group they started as a punk group and other than one way or another, which just could be a rock song and not even a punk song. Yeah. It's hard to figure out what's up with that because 
if you've ever heard the demo for Heart of Glass, no. Without the disco production, it's just this jangly guitar bit, and it sounds closer to Public Image Limited than the sort of disco glory. And I say that without irony. A Heart of Glass is this disco song that yeah. is just kind of mind-bending and sonically overwhelming and rhythmically just so juicy and exciting. And so Blondie, it's like, okay, what the hell are they doing from like song to song? <laughs> the tide is high. And you're like, all right, so this is pop calypso or reggae. <laughs> it's like, actually, yeah, but they somehow managed to make it great. Yeah. So what musicians excited you back when you were in your formative years where you had something like an artistic awakening going, oh, that is exciting. Okay. Yeah. A lot of standard Pink Floyd Dire Straits, Blondie. I was listening to a lot of Marillion, which is a very depressing UK band <laughs> from the time. Jethro Tull, probably a fair amount of crud. My the older brothers and sisters were playing a lot of Beatles around the house when I was a little kid, which obviously helps. So yeah, it was a, kind of a mix, but a fair amount of hard rock, not heavy metal so much, but a little bit here and there. Yeah, for me... I think the thing that woke me up was Quiet Riot, of all things, which oh, yeah. <laughs> is a little embarrassing to admit to, but the science fiction presentation, or whatever it is that's going on with the straitjacket and the mask, and I'm like, that makes sense to me. I don't know how it makes sense to me, but that makes <laughs> sense to me. I think I better get the tape. Exactly. There's just that kind of energy to music at that time. And I'm sure it's the same now. I'm just not as in tune to what's happening. But it's just kind of fun to see what people are doing, how they're doing it, how they're marketing themselves and their music in fun ways. It's such a bizarre and creative thing. Yeah, I think of Bowie's heroes. And it's like, we could be heroes. And it's like, he doesn't seem to be holding himself above how hopeless everybody kind of is, or hopefully hopeless or something like that. Yeah. I also remember that was the Serious Moonlight tour for the Let's Dance album. Mm. And that concert, that was Thatcher's England. And he looked so, other than his hair, which was bleached, he looked so conservative. And yet he's playing ashes to ashes. I didn't have an older brother to go, oh yeah, no, Bowie was cool in the 70s. <laughs> HBO was my older brother letting me see this concert. And it just went on and on and on. And there are just so many different permutations and I think I always wanted to be a rock star watching. Okay. Everybody sort of does. It looks like fun. <laughs> <laughs> Until you hear the, see the behind the music videos 20 years later. David Bowie didn't have to endure his bandmates. He could fire anybody. <laughs> true. Very true. <laughs> Unlike so many of these bands where it's like, I do remember there was an Aerosmith live DVD and they had this sort of comic bit because they had a PA or somebody going around to all the different dressing rooms because they didn't have a dressing room. All the members of Aerosmith had separate quarters and they were trying to establish the set list and every single one of them saw, oh, he wants that song? No, we're doing that. And they were joking about how dysfunctional they are, except it's worse than that. And it's like, this is sad. This is just sad. <laughs> yeah, that's why I became a poet. Just me dealing with my stuff. Punk rock, DIY. <laughs> exactly. A little bit easier, less overhead. <laughs> Hi, this is John Waters, and you're listening to The Drunken Odyssey. Keep on listening, or I'll have you killed.
So you and I are obsessed with the Disney phenomenon, which I don't know about you, but for me, generally speaking, I try not to write about it. I tried not to, but yeah, I understand that. Some people just find it mystifying and I'm like, yeah, it's okay. You don't have to understand. <laughs> but for me, it's this imaginative place where whenever I was there as a kid, the clock was ticking. Mm. And while Disney World was so huge and you're like, oh, and there's this gorgeous, weird hotel that the monorail just goes right through. And I'm like, can we go in there? And my folks are like, no, we don't have time. And then they would sit around drinking coffee. And I'm like, we got to go on a ride to give some idea of just what this can do to a child. So generally speaking, if there's a Disneyland ride duplicated at Walt Disney World, the Disneyland ride is better. The exception was Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, although you currently are now winning because yes. we don't have one, but we had two <laughs> tracks. And for those who are genuinely unfamiliar with this ride, so it's loosely inspired by the Wind in the Willows adaptation that Disney did in the 40s, maybe early 50s, but older. It was relatively new when Disneyland opened in 55, but you're just tooling around in these, I don't think they're Model Ts, but they're very old style cars. Yes, old motor cars. And they don't go very fast. They go like maybe six miles an hour, but this thing is like driving around in your house at six miles an hour in a car. And because there were two tracks, there was a point in the ride when the cars would all be in the sort of center square of this town that you've been terrorizing in your car. And there were like mirrors in the room and your brain, part of you knows, they haven't been dragging bodies out of here. I know this is safe, but your brain just <laughs> is looking at how overwhelming all of this is using such low tech. This isn't oh, yeah. such low tech gear. And you're thinking, oh, yeah. there's no way we're not crashing. And the end of the ride, spoiler alert, you crash into a train and then you arrive in hell where Satan and little imps are cackling at you. That's the best ride ever. Yeah. And then the ride is over. It's like you're in there in the room with Satan and the little demons. And then it's like, ah, and then it's like, boom, you're done. There's no happily ever after. There's just like, whoop, went to hell. Have a good day. Well, and then, okay, go back in the sunshine, get a churro. Yeah. <laughs> it's bizarre, but I love it. But yeah, I wish I could have seen the world version. That That does sound like an improvement to have it that way. I think it's the only ride we had where it was like oh, clearly better. The ride was done away with in order to make room for a Winnie the Pooh gift shop with a Ugh. very lame Winnie the Pooh ride. Now they can't get rid of Winnie the Pooh merchandise. And you know what they're selling? Mr. Toad's merchandise. And it's like, the ride isn't even there. And also in 1971, of course we're going to have a ride where kids can ride around in a car and then crash and go to hell. When you get rid of that, there's no putting that back. <laughs> Certainly not in yeah. fantasy land. The times have changed so much. Oh, yeah. Once that's gone, there's no way they're getting it back in. Everything's got to be G-rated over there on Fantasyland. Yeah. And this yeah. was, that was a genuine sense of menace that I, I, I deeply loved. <laughs> and the pub, and I think this was kind of concealed, but the pub scene actually had a nude painting of a woman. And I think her hair covered her nipples so it's like none of the naughty bits showed but nevertheless it's like no in a british pub old school there would be a nude painting of a woman and it was just this glorious weird cartoon i am so enamored of the inappropriate <laughs> happening at this i don't want people hurt i don't want things to get pornographic unless maybe i'm involved but for the most part i don't want to break anything but yeah it's just so overwhelming. So oh, yeah. what was your first Disneyland poem 
where you're like, am I really doing this? And you're like, I guess I'm doing this. The whole project was, I was very resistant to it, but it was a weird, basically I turned 49 and suddenly found myself thinking about Disneyland in an unexplainable kind of fervor. And I've never been to Disney World, but Disneyland is a place where I went when I was a little tiny kid with my parents and family. I was in college about five hours north of there. So I went a couple times with friends in that time and after. And then shortly after my mom passed away, went there with my wife and my daughters for the first time. So all these intersections of my life are there at Disneyland, but turned 49, woke up one day thinking about it and found myself kind of obsessed with it and watching YouTube videos. On YouTube, you can see the opening day broadcast mm -hmm. with Walt Disney and Ronald Reagan and Art Linkletter and all them. And it's bizarre and it's fun. Bob Cummings, who yeah. <laughs> was in a Hitchcock movie, but there's a moment because this was, TV was new. Mm-hmm. And I don't think anyone had tried live TV on this scale ever before. No. It was chaos. It was amazing that they got away with what they did. So the camera moves in on Bob Cummings. Okay, let me back up. <laughs> At the beginning of this special, the opening day of Disneyland, Bob Cummings gives a tour of Main Street and we meet his family. And then an hour later in Fantasyland, the camera slowly zooms in on him and he's kissing a woman who clearly is not his wife. Yes, and then that is amazing. he realizes, oh, I'm on camera. He wipes his mouth and he says the pimpest thing I've ever heard. He goes, well, folks, as you can see, I really don't want to leave Fantasyland right now, but we have to. Yeah, that video and the background of it are amazing. But no, at this time, I'm watching YouTube videos, subscribing to podcasts. I'm reading articles, reading books about Disneyland, just obsessively trying to figure out the history of it and reading about Walt. And my wife is also a writer. She sees this going on. And <laughs> even though I'm trying to hide it, she'll get into the car and I am quickly turning off all podcasts. But she sees this going on and finally she's like, well, what are you writing? And I'm like, I'm not writing anything. This is a dumb obsession. I don't know what's going on. And she's like, Matt, you are a writer and you are doing research. Right. So I started writing and it started off slow with just a few poems about different Disneyland rides, then moved on to experiences with my family when I was a kid, kind of looking at the nostalgia aspect. And then it just kept kind of broadening out. And it's because I wrote this book, essentially, that I figured out what was going on, that this obsession wasn't some dumb sitcom midlife crisis episode, really figuring out. No, it was a dramatic uh, midlife crisis yeah, episode yeah. of a show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm writing about Disneyland, but I think most of what started it was spurred by my mom passing away and looking back on first memories I had with my parents and things like that, but also mixing in much more than that. It's a, it's about the joy of the place, the history of the place, my own personal connections through the years and just weird bits of it and just having fun with the ideas and seeing what happened. And like I talked about rock stars being poems written over decades, this is a much tighter. This is a few years of poems, maybe with a couple slightly older ones that fit worked in. But yeah, this was kind of a sit down, write poems about Disneyland for a couple years kind of process. And one of the best bits was early on, I had an 
annual pass for one year and a lot of Southwest airline miles. Um, <laughs> so I spent some time there and in fact made my own writing residency at a cheap motel, 20 minute walk from Disneyland. So I was there for two weeks where I would basically go to the park at open, find a table outside Jolly Holiday, sit down and take up space while everybody passed by like, aren't you going to Space Mountain? And just did a lot of writing and editing while I was there. I actually have favorite writing spots at Walt Disney World, and I don't know how many people can say that. <laughs> but there are places that feel a little bit magical to me. Oh, yeah. I have office spaces in Disneyland, it feels like. So, yeah. So, I've been to Disneyland once, as opposed to Walt Disney World, which I'm guessing, if every day is a different visit, might be approaching a 1,000 at this point. Oh, wow. I have an annual pass. I live across town. Yeah. If I live closer, I'd be up there. <laughs> the sense I get is that Disneyland, I know that there have been big changes over the years, but I also feel like it might be a little more stable than Walt Disney yeah. World. That the Matterhorn opened in the 60s, and they've added a few animatronics of Yetis. And I remember that was one of the few rides when it's like, okay, we don't have one where we are. And it was so joyously quaint and low tech and yet so damn much fun. Yeah, that's very much my experience. I mean, with the different visits I've made in my life kind of intersecting, because when you walk into Disneyland, it looks basically the same as it did the first time I went in the 70s. There are subtle changes here and there. They've changed windows here and there or designs. But that street, the castle, the Matterhorn, so much of it is essentially the same place decade to decade. It just connects. They add to it, but rarely do yeah. things just go away. The pirate ship went away. Yeah. A couple of things. The tuna but... sandwich restaurant in the pirate ship. Yeah. Chicken of the sea. And okay. And I need you to comfort me here, Matt, because when I went, Pirates of the Caribbean was closed. I didn't get to eat a Monte Cristo sandwich. Oh, well, now if you go, there's another place you can get it. So they've also got it at Cafe Orleans. But that sandwich, it is so I think in one of your good. poems, you describe the bread as being closer to cake than bread. It is. When I go to Disneyland, a Monte Cristo sandwich is right behind churro on the list of something that needs to happen. They're so good. They had a Monte Cristo sandwich. Toy Story <laughs> Land here, when it first opened, they had a Monte Cristo sandwich with like jelly in it. Oh. And I'm like, this is the greatest. And then I'm like, okay, a couple of weeks later, I'm like back in Disney's Hollywood Studios. They got rid of it. And I'm like, son of a bitch. And that's not right. Because yeah, the Disneyland one doesn't come with jelly in it, but it's got a side of jelly that you dip it in. Probably better that way. It is. But there's this Proustian thing that you write about a lot where you're watching your children have new experiences that remind you of the excitement you felt as a child while you're also remembering, okay, and now I'm the parent and my parent is gone. Yeah. And I think of what Christopher Buckley once wrote after his parents had passed away, which is, all right, which means I'm on deck <laughs> in terms yeah. of mortality. I'm young, I'm not going just yet, but there's no generation above me now. Yeah, but it to... is kind of amazing going to Disneyland with my kids. It's like a movie remake that's been recast with my kids in my place and me in my parents' place. It's just kind of wild. So what poem would you like to read? 
How about you mentioned what you find at Disneyland is with the Monte Cristo? You know, read that. What you find at Disneyland is that when you came here on a trip by yourself and investigate why you can't stop thinking about the place and had thought maybe it was the park itself and Walt and all his stories is that you were wrong and you're here because of you and all the stories you've been part of on trips made here in past years to this cheerful once upon an orange grove. And it's like pulling out boxes from the basement and trying to fit into clothes from different ages of your life. And you can't without with them small or faded or so brittle they splinter apart like straw or just out of fashion. Because you can't be 4 or 25 or 46 ever again. You have to walk with one stiff elbow, the toe and heels that hurt. All these small pains that now take ages to soothe. You can't change any of this, except maybe that gut. But man, you've come to exactly the wrong place for that when there are churro carts, peanut butter dipped in chocolate, a thousand sweet things shaped like Mickey Mouse's head. There is a legendary sandwich you find to be ham and cheese wedged inside of something more funnel cake than bread. You came here to ride Space Mountain and find answers. But the answers aren't on roller coasters. They're in the rhythm of your body's aches as you hike up Disneyland Drive, thinking about trips with your daughters, wife, parents, friends you find yourself walking without here in the middle of your life, halfway to the next. Don't you dare waste a breath. That's such a great poem. Thank you. That's the point where I was still trying to figure out why I was writing the book when that poem came together. It's like, oh, this is why I'm writing the book. Poems tell us the obvious things that we ourselves are missing so many times. We trick ourselves into figuring stuff out. Yes, I think that's kind of it. The poems tend to be smarter than me, so. Well, the good ones. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was talking to my friend, Todd James Pierce, the Disney historian, about your book. And both of us remarked, when we saw that book come out, we're like, I don't know about this. And then we read it. Or he's dipped in it. I read the book and we both came to the same conclusion. Like, oh, this is a bona fide great book of poems that has Disneyland as its subject. This is not some person torturing a Disney obsession just because he's a fan. Oh, yeah. I appreciate hearing that. This is a book that really I obsessed over it for several years working on it. And then as soon as I was nearing finished, it's like, okay, who the fuck is going to publish this? Disney publishers are not going to go near a book of poetry. Poetry publishers are not going to go near a book about Disneyland. It, as weird as it is, I'm state poet. I've done things. I've got a resume. But who's going to believe in a project this weird that I almost didn't even start because I thought it was too weird? And then it ends up being, I think, maybe the most meaningful project I've put together ever. But it happens to be about Disneyland, which has got such cultural kind of fluff connotations for so many people that they may not be able to let themselves get into it in a way that will show that it's actually something that I worked my ass off on. It's a weird collection. I'm grateful for the Old Mill Press, who does mainly Disney and Disney history books, but does a tiny bit of poetry 
and they took it on and have been wonderful. So I'm just grateful because otherwise I really thought I might go to the end of my life without finding a publisher for this. Well, the Old Mill Press is just a really remarkable outfit. And yeah, when they sent me Dave Bossert's book, the amount of care that was taken, I'm like, I hope when I die that the Undertaker will <laughs> treat my body the way they are treating these books. Oh, that's with, it. With such... I mean love and care and making sure yeah. that this beautiful book arrived intact yeah and just the care they put into it i mean it looks beautiful it's got a george scribner painting on the front who's a disney artist a disney director and it's just a the perfect image for this that they found you know i'm used to you publish a book of poetry you get a great press who's usually a university press or something with limited resources and time and to publish something with a press that delivers a lot of really design work and all feels like such a luxury. So the author I think of who sticks with me when I think of my own sort of lingering attachment to this place and in your poems is Marcel Proust and how you're in the now, but you're also living actively in the past, which is not simply comforting. Yeah, but it's something that it adapts well to the setting of Disneyland because it feels like time seems much more fluid there in this place that looks very much the same as in 1973 to me. You walk in and there's the plaque today. It's about yesterday, tomorrow, and fantasy that it purposefully trying to mix up time for people. It is, it's got that certain kind of magic and it lent itself really well to writing poems about and in the land itself. Well, and it begins with Main Street, USA, which is this idealized version of Walt's town where he grew up, Marceline. I find it strange that that keeps getting reproduced in Disney parks over the world. We've got a yeah. new park in China. They need a Main Street, USA. And it's like, I'm not against the idea, but oh yeah, I guess it probably just seems like more fantasy to other cultures. In the 70s, when I started going, okay, if you go around, you can find places that look like Main Street, USA. Yeah. Not building to building, but you could find structures that old that are these American leftovers. And yeah, a lot. So much is an interpretation. I've been to Marceline a bunch of times because it's not very far from where I live. And the downtown, you can see the hints of main streets, but it's still, you got to look for it. It is an idealized memory thing. I'm guessing they don't have ragtime pumping out in the street. <laughs> Yeah, I did not see any four folks singing together, barbershops, <laughs> quartets or anything like that, or no parades while I was there. So, Well, and I think also Walt Disney was deeply committed to producing something much greater than your expectations. Yes. Okay, if you want a fun park where you can go with your whole family, for one-third the cost, he could have made an adequate Yeah park that would have been okay but it's like let's make it more complicated let's make it more detailed let's make it so that people can't actually have a complete experience with one visit and i imagine it just puts a zap on some people's head and they never come back but for a lot of people you realize like there's so many corners i haven't explored that yeah it does reward people for going back yeah and that's part of the fun of you know when i was writing the book too one of the the first trip i made to marceline was in that time and there was a great 
Walt Disney hometown museum there and different things. And it was fun to explore him talking about things like that. He's got a story when he was a little tiny kid, charged the neighbor kids a nickel for a show, and the show sucked. It was like animals dressed in people clothing. And his mom got mad at him, sat him down, says, you know, you do not do that. You give people more than they expect for what they pay. Give the money back to your friends. (laughs) They present that at the museum as kind of a fundamental lesson that carried him through. And you see that in Disneyland. You really want to get more than what you pay for. I used to get my haircut on Main Street. Turns out the people in the barbershop, they are the hairdressers for the entertainment. Wow. And so basically you're getting a show business level haircut. Not that I don't have a ton of hair. Got the aging Frank Sinatra look on on top of my head. But they've got a functioning barbershop there. The insanity. There's so many corners for you to explore. And yeah, I think I'm cranky at this point. So on a day when it's not too hot, sometimes just being there. I don't need to ride rides. I don't have some huge agenda other than let me just hang out. That's fun. That is the best when you can visit the park. It's not like a two-day vacation or whatever where you got to cram things in. Because that's when I was there for the two weeks writing poems and editing poems in the park. It's kind of magical to just watch people and go at your own pace. And yeah, I love that. And shockingly, I go there to think. Yeah, I bet. I wrote that essay about the child who died in the lagoon And I read the New York Times story when it came out the next day, and I just thought, whoever wrote this doesn't understand the geography. And I could also see from the comments of people going, we should burn Disney to the ground. How dare they let this happen? And it's like, yeah, it's twice the size of Manhattan in a swamp. The alligators are home. And there are all kinds of things Disney would do to try to minimize the problem. But just all the details, this was so, should have been so preventable. And yet I could appreciate a family from Nebraska exhausted. Oh, yeah. Just trying to relax at the end of the day, not recognizing the danger they might be in. And since then, Disney's just put up fencing all around so that you cannot, you'd have to go over the fence to then break the rules and run the risk of that. But, you know, that was a case where I felt dissatisfied with the New York Times coverage because they didn't get the story right. The facts are right, but it didn't make sense the way they presented the story. And then I couldn't help but think about my own family and what the place means to me. And because they had to close everything down, there were people scheduled to get married at the wedding pavilion. And I don't know what happened, but they didn't get married there, not that day. Yeah. And yeah. and the cast members who then have to do their jobs in a situation. Like I do have some friends who have been cast members and I feel these connections to them as well. Yeah. And sometimes it's fun. definitely is it's such a big even just disneyland it's smaller than the world but it's such a big place but there's such a range of experience in every day you walk around you watch people it just lends itself to a lot of the writing you'll see the people having a good time and you'll see the people making the wrong choices for the age of the kids they brought or the (laughs) the day they chose it is just kind of wild to watch people and reflect on and do some writing well, Disneyland has to be different, but Walt Disney World is like, nature's coming in all the time. Oh, yeah. We've got birds that are straight out of the Bible just roaming around, and 
I remember going on the Animal Kingdom's like safari. This one area was just overpopulated by turkey vultures. <laughs> and someone asked the cast member, oh, are they native to Africa? Because the theming is we're supposed to be in Africa. And they're like, no, they're not indigenous to the area. <laughs> I don't know why they're here. <laughs> they're there for the food. I wonder if you would read Disneyland 1979. Sure. Disneyland 1979. You find a photograph in the box. You don't recall Annie. Your dad leans against a white rail. He smiles with you. Monorail track in the background and you don't remember. How does this exist only on this paper square in a yellowing envelope marked with a year which, if you lost this chip of it, would wholly disappear? My parents just popped up more and more as I was writing this book. One of those surprises that shouldn't have been a surprise, though. Well, you had to figure out what was on your mind. Yeah. Too preoccupied with all the things you think should be on your mind. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And like me, you've had some heartbreak at Disney theme parks. Yes. I wonder if you would read You Turn 25 in Euro Disney. Yeah, this is the one non-Disneyland park poem in the book. Where I got to go to Euro Disney back when it was still Euro Disney. The girl I was dating won a trip and it was an amazing experience, but also tragic. You turned 25 in Euro Disney. Like in a fairy tale, there was a magic gift, a bank's random drawing. And there was love. The memories, though, the details, are as gone now as the dress from a fairy godmother when 11.59 ticks to 12, without clock chimes, just digital silence, a few thousand midnights, each taking a thread away. At most, there's one glass slipper left, among mice and pumpkins and old torn things. You mainly remember her, a breakfast where Goofy toppled comically. A cake of indeterminate flavor, 25 candles in it. What sticks is how much is missing, even her, who you loved. When there's not enough magic, you both know, to make what doesn't fit, fit, you have to show patience. Have to know you don't break up in Disneyland. You wait like a script for a dark hotel room out in Paris. Calm conversation. Then a flight alone, airplane seat tray table, you will watch like a TV screen gone static, but you're too tired to change it for hour after hour, half your life ago. That is the show for this week. I would like to thank Matt Mason and Isaiah Portillo for editing this episode. Don't forget to check out thedrunkenodyssey.com throughout the week for all kinds of great written content, including perfect advice from Dr. Perfect, heartbreaking comic book reviews by Drew Barth, imaginative playlists by Stephen McClurg, and reviews of masterful cinema by your own curator of schlock, Jeff Schuster. All right. Until next time, put your ass in the chair, keep attacking those keys, and don't swallow the worm. Dear listeners, writers, and fellow Odysseans, send your questions, 
observations, complaints, manifestos, transcriptions of Turkish opera, and whatever else you got, to thedrunkenodyssey at gmail.com. A while back, John King endowed the Museum of Schlock and tasked me, Jeff Schuster, with curating the bugger. Each week, I curate one more entry into this proud genre of film. I think. Truth is, I'm really not sure what schlock is, but my writing about it is... sublime. Read it every Friday at thedrunkenodyssey.com. Sailor Jerry, only you understand me. Thank you for listening to The Drunken Odyssey with John King, a podcast about the writing life. This is your announcer, Lauren Butler. <laughs>